0: direct your attention to this afternoon are found in the book of Leviticus and we'll be looking at Leviticus chapter 17 through chapter 20. As you turn your Bibles there let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord we've sung our desire a very simple desire that, that you would be glorified. Lord that you would Continue to perfect that work that you've begun in us. That we might be conformed to your image in an increasing manner. That our lives would be characterized more and more by holiness. More and more by Christness. And less and less like the surrounding world. And not so that people would stand in awe of us or applaud us. Not at all. Lord, we want this to... This is our desire Because we want to see you exalted. We want to see more and more people come to know you in all genuineness. To come and recognize the reality of who you are. And what you have accomplished on our behalf. And Lord, we don't want to simply preach that message. We want to live out that message. We want to show the the living evidence of the power of your transformation in our lives. And so, our request, as we look at your word, is that you would... Use your word in all of its power to accomplish that work of transformation. That this would not just be a, an exercise in knowledge of our intellect. That this would be an exercise of the heart. An exercise of your spiritual and supernatural transformation. Use your word even now to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. And we ask these things because we long to see him exalted in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. So we are in the middle of a study of the book of Leviticus. And last week we looked at the Day of Atonement. And we noted how that chapter, chapter 16, which describes the Day of Atonement, is the pinnacle of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It is the high point. It's everything that those first five books are pointing to. It's a climactic passage. Because we saw in that chapter that it demonstrated how a defiled people can actually live in the presence of a holy God through the work of atonement. And so now that the, the Israelites have come to the day of atonement and they have been washed, so to speak, in the blood of the lamb. Now what? I mean, that's that's the logical question. Well, now that we have been made clean. What's left for us to do? Now that we've been fully set apart to serve God as his people, now what? What left is le- what, what, what is left of us to do? And that's the same question we Christians ask, too. Now that we have come to Christ and we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, now that our sins have been atoned for, what is left for us to do? Well, the very principles that we'll look at today in Leviticus are the same principles for us. And they can be summed up in the phrase holiness. Now that we have been saved... We are called to live lives of holiness. And that's really what God is communicating to the Israelites in the book of Leviticus. From chapter 17 through 27. It is the now what that they have been washed. How should they now live? It elaborates how the people should live considering the atonement that they have received. You could really summarize the book of Leviticus very simply in the first 16 chapters, as the way to God, sacrifice. And then 17 through 27, the way with God, as sanctification or holiness. And again, we ask the same questions of Christians. Now that our sins have been atoned for by the blood of Christ, how shall we live? The answer is the same holiness. But again, it's really important that we understand what holiness means because it's often misunderstood. Again, when, frequently when, when people hear the word holiness, it conveys this sense of self righteousness or uh, uh, being better than other people, having a mindset that is superior to others. But that's, that's a, really a misnomer. The word holiness really simply means to be set apart for God, to be His. To live according to his standards and no longer the world's. I like the way Mark Dever actually describes holiness. He writes, an inevitable inevitable part of holiness is to possess a certain kind of strangeness. So it was in the Old and New Testaments, so it is for us today. Holiness is strangeness to the world. We are strange because we have been set apart and made special by God. So he defines, just in a, in a, for our vernacular, holiness really is strangeness, looking different than the world around us because we have been set apart for God. And we who live around Portland are no strangers to strangeness, right? The, the motto of Portland is keep Portland weird. So we we are surrounded by weirdness and strangeness. But the difference between The strangeness of Portland and the strangeness of a Christian in this world are vastly different. They're actually the polar opposites of the spectrum because the strangeness of Portland is really a celebration of individualism and autonomy, kind of a mindset that I am who I'm going to be because I love myself and I don't care what anybody else thinks. But the mindset of a Christian is really a, a celebration of the work that God has done in our hearts. And therefore, it's a complete desire to want to live according to his standards. It's, I'm going to look strange because I've been set apart for him. I am his man or his woman. So it's not a celebration of autonomy. It's a celebration of conformity to likeness. So very different than the strangeness of Portland. One is the consequence of self expression, the other is the result of worshiping God. And Leviticus 17 through 27 are instructions on how the Israelites are to live as strangers or holy ones in the world in light of what God had did for them, has had done for them on the Day of Atonement. Now that they had been reconciled to God, they needed to live like it. just like in marriage when a couple gets married there's vast changes to their lives they begin living together they spend their time differently than they did as single individuals even their eating habits change and likewise the new rela- relationship established by God with the, with the Israelites in Leviticus Changes the way and how they should live. And so. These next four chapters really could be summarized as. How holiness will look in their lives. They will have holiness and reverence for life. Holiness in their sexual purity. Holiness in the way they treat others, particularly in the way they love others and holiness In regard to the consequences for failing to be holy. And so let's look first of all at the holiness and their reverence for life. Being holy demands a change in the way that they view life. So in verses 1 through 9 you'll notice that it, it speaks of sacrifices that are made outside of the camp. These are sacrifices of domesticated animals, animals that would typically be used in the sacrificial system for the for the uh, for the tabernacle. And this law, as it's explained, prohibits sacrifices outside of the tabernacle. And there's really two reasons for this. The first of all is that the Israelites were called to only worship God according to His instructions. They can't worship God according to their own. So even if they're going to worship God outside of the tabernacle, that's wrong. If they're going to worship God through sacrifice, the only sacrifices that should be offered should be in the tabernacle. The other reason that he gives for this prohibition of sacrifices outside the camp is because there was a tendency for some of the Israelites, apparently, to sacrifice to goat demons. And we see this in verse 7. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons with which they play the harlot. This shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their generations. So, the, the reason for this, besides the obvious, is that Israel had now been set apart for God. They belonged to God. They were God's people. And God wasn't going to share them with any other God or any other demon. So, He prohibits any sort of interaction. With them, Just like a wife isn't going to tolerate her husband to continue to spend time with his ex-girlfriends. She, he belongs to her now. And that's totally appropriate. In verses 10 through 14, it, the text then describes the prohibition against eating blood. And this is due to the sacred significance of blood. Blood was representative of life. Now, I'm not going to get into all of this as a really cool passage. But the reason I'm not going to get into all the, the depth here is because I, about, it was about a year ago that I actually preached just on this section, that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So if you're interested in learning more about the significance of this, I would encourage you to look up that sermon online. Um, but the, the, the summary point of this prohibition against eating blood is seen in verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Blood represented life. Its significance was that that is exactly what God was going to use to cleanse the Israelites from their sin. Because the wages of sin is death. You sin and there's a heavy price to be paid. Some creature needs to die. Blood must be shed. So blood had a very sacred significance. But beyond that too, if the Israelites were to eat blood, it would be like trivializing the very thing that was purchasing their ransom, that was covering their sins. To to eat blood and to trivialize blood would be to trivialize death. And to trivialize the consequences for sin. And the Lord wanted the Israelites to recognize that sin has major consequences. Death is the result. So just as life was sacred, blood was sacred and could therefore not be eaten. The last prohibition in this section is against eating animals that were found dead. So unlike the other two commands... The violation here wouldn't end in death. However, it would make one spiritually dirty. And the logic here, I think, is that if if an Israelite were to find a dead animal in the wilderness, they wouldn't know if the blood had been drained out of it or not. So the safest thing to do would be to not eat it. But if they did eat it, they would at least be considered unclean because there was the possibility of having consumed blood. But I also think it just points to the reality that even if it's not sacrilegious to eat a dead animal, it's still just a dirty thing to do. And I think the Lord wanted to communicate that. Again, the, the, the overarching theme of all these commands in chapter 17 is the sacred significance of life. Life was to be seen as sacred. When God brought about life and creation, you'll recall, what did he repeat after everything he created? It was good. Really, the, the garden and all that took place in creation was a celebration of life. That's what the garden was, was, was all about. That's why there was even this command to be fruitful and multiply. Produce life. Produce life throughout. Rejoice in life. And you remember that death didn't come into the world until what? Until Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, they were cast out of the garden. Because death had no place in God's holy place. God's place was a place of life. It was a place of birth. It was a place of creation and joy in life. Death needed to be outside. And so they were cast off. Death was a horrible consequence because it destroyed the life God had created. And to trivialize death would, would lead to trivializing sin and its consequences. And I think this is why in Acts fifteen twenty nine, even the apostles encouraged the Gentile uh, churches to keep this commandment. To not eat anything that had blood still in it. Even though Christ had already fulfilled all of the law. And I think for us, it's helpful just to recognize the reality that we live in a time and a place where regular mass killings occur, where abortion and euthanasia are not just tolerated, they're glorified. And there's a rapid rise of suicide. All of these things are really the consequence of living in a culture that, that frankly celebrates death. Al Mohler frequently talks about our culture as a culture of death. We've become actually fairly calloused to death. We hear about people dying, and it doesn't cause us shock anymore. At least not like it should. So there's another shooting. More people die. There's another car accident, and, and we just become numb. So we need to be careful not to be conformed to this culture of death. In particular, we need to recognize the impact that social media has on the way that we think about life and death. How video games affect the way that we think, TV shows, movies, really any form of entertainment, even the news. The more that death gets trivialized in our culture, the more desensitized we become to death and therefore the more likely we're going to take the consequences of sin more lightly. We need to remember what the cost of sin was. I mean, just think for yourself. How often you hear, maybe even say, with with joy, Christ died for me. Without fully remembering what? What that actually means. There was a real man. The God man. Led a perfect life. And he was tortured. Shed his blood. That we might be saved. And then we rejoice in that. We sing songs about the blood. But at the same time. We need to be really cautious that we don't trivialize the immense preciousness of the Lamb of God. We were ransomed, as Peter said, not with earthly things, gold and silver and precious stone. We were ransomed with the precious blood of the Lamb. And if we consider death lightly, the reality is we're going to begin to consider what Christ did for us lightly as well. That would be a very sad thing. So having become a people redeemed through the atonement, God's people are now to walk according to God's design and to see all life is sacred. We need to see all life is sacred. That's really the overarching principle for us. The next chapter, chapter 18, considers instructions on sexual purity. Like the previous chapter, this considers how to live in God's presence Similarly to the way God had structured life in the Garden of Eden. Remember that the tabernacle was, so, was supposed to be like a mini Garden of Eden. Where God's people could come and dwell in His presence once again. And the Garden of Eden was a celebration of life again. And when death entered, Adam and Eve were expelled from it. And besides life... Another part of life in the garden was procreation. Right? Be fruitful and multiply. And we need to remember that sex was a part of God's design. It was a great and wonderful and precious thing. It was something to celebrate. But just as Satan sought to destroy God's plan for life by deceiving Eve into sinning so that death could come into the world, likewise, Satan seeks to destroy God's design for sex. And this is one of the reasons sexual perversion is linked with the majority of the world's false religions. Satan goes after life. And he goes after marital intimacy. And since Israel had been set apart to be God's holy people in his holy place... They need to reflect that holiness in avoiding the perversions of all the nations that surrounded them. And that's why it states this in 18 verse 3. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. And this really establishes the point of the chapter. They are to conform to God's design for sexuality, not the nations around them. They are to act like God's people, not like unbelievers. And so the first principle we see is the prohibition against uncovering the nakedness of relatives, verses 6 through 18. And this phrase to uncover the nakedness of someone really is just a euphemism for intercourse. But it's interesting that he uses this phrase. Because later on, in fact, in this other later on in this chapter, he just says to lie with. And in other places he says to have intercourse with. Why does he say to uncover the nakedness of such and such a person? Well, it's very purposeful. He's trying to draw our minds back to a previous incident in the Bible. In in particular, Genesis chapter 9. So why don't you go ahead and flip to Genesis chapter 9 and recall the account of Ham and Noah. As you might recall, Noah had made some wine and unfortunately become drunk with it. And in that, he uncovered himself inside his tent. And then it says in verse 20, or verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and sold, sorry, and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. And so you have this curse upon Ham and his descendants because of what Ham did. Now, What Ham did wrong, we should just take at face value, is instead of covering his father up as he should have done, he used the opportunity as an opportunity to mock him, to make fun of him. And the point being made in Leviticus 18 is that Ham's descendants have gotten far worse. Right? The, the, The people that are mentioned... That God is warning the Israelites about are the Canaanites. And even the Egyptians are descendants of Ham. But as we read further in verses 19 through 23. We see that it's not just incest that was warned about in 6 through 18. But in this section even homosexuality and bestiality are also practiced by the Canaanites. I mean they have gone Full board. It's hard to imagine any worse kind of sexual perversion. Notice verse 27. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all of these abominations and the land has become defiled. So Hans sin of mocking a naked man a few generations later has become a state that is filled with the worst kinds of sexual perversions. And I think this is the point. Once you let sin in the door, there is no stopping the rapid destruction that it makes. Because this is how sin works. Just consider with me. A king's little glance at a woman bathing leads to adultery, which leads to him killing One of his best soldiers. And then to the death of a child. And eventually civil war. And eventually the complete collapse of the Israelite nation. Or more modern. Just a little curiosity. Leads to just a little click. Which leads to an addiction to pornography or a little private conversation with an attractive coworker leads to the first step of adultery and just like him a little acceptance of immorality unless it gets checked will eventually lead to wholesale corruption and you might be thinking Man, it seems a little bit over the top for God to warn his people about these sins. I mean, good night. I mean, imagine you were visiting a church and and the preacher just warns his congregation, don't commit bestiality, don't commit incest. You'd be thinking, my goodness, these people are sick. They must be sick if they need this kind of warning. But such a warning was necessary. Because these were the very sins that Israel eventually did commit. And this is what leads them to being kicked out of the land. You have to ask yourself, well, how did this happen? How did God's holy people who had been cleansed, who had been sanctified through the day of atonement, how did they go that far? I think the answer is seen in verses 24 and 30. These are the practices of the surrounding nations. See, when you see other people engaging in such sin, after a while you think, gosh, they can't be that bad. I mean, they seem to be having fun. God's rules start to seem a, a bit stiff and legalistic. You look at the Canaanites and you see they seem to be the ones with real freedom. I mean, they know how to have a good time. They know how to live life to the fullest. And you see, once God's people start taking their cues from the nations surrounding them rather than God. They just eventually become like them. I mean, if they're taking their cues from these surrounding nations rather than God's word. I mean, what's going to stop them? And this is why God chooses to close this chapter with verse 30. Thus you were to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which which have been practiced before you. So as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. Again, God's people need to take their cues in how to live from God, not from the world. And this really brings us to the central theme of this section. Chapter 19. Be holy as God is holy, which I've summarized as holiness and love. Let's look at the first four verses of chapter 19. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord, your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. And you might notice some parallels with other chapters of the Bible. Because chapter 18 is really just a renewed call for Israel to live according to the covenant that God had established with them on Mount Sinai. That's really summarized as the Ten Commandments. And you'll see in this chapter, actually, every single one of the Ten Commandments is either explicitly stated or alluded to. Moreover, you'll notice that after every command that's given, you'll see this phrase, I am the Lord. The point being, do this because I am your God. You are my people. I am your God. Act like this because this is what I am like. Israel you are to be holy just like I am holy. Right And again, that's an, another way to summarize holiness or to, or to depict holiness is like Godlikeness, or for New covenant believers, Christ-likeness. That's what it means to be holy. We are to be like God. And so this chapter explains what this holiness looked like. And this is really the way God acts towards His creatures. So, for the Israelites, holiness would look like devout worship, honesty, integrity, justice, charity, and love. You notice in verse three, they were to keep the Sabbath. In verse four, they were to not fashion idols. It also says in verse five through eight that they needed to consume their peace offerings within three days. i think I think this is actually an allusion to the death and resurrection of Christ, that he was in the grave for three days. We'll get into all of that, but I think that's a foreshadowing of that event. Charity is spoken in, about in verses 9 through 10. And being an agricultural society, they needed to be willing to let their grain be gleaned by the poor people around them. So that, that, that if people didn't have the ability to grow their own crops they could at least get some of the crops that had fallen on the ground and glean heads of grain from that. It's a way to care for the poor. Charity. They were also to be honest, verses 11 through 12. They were not to lie. They were not to steal. They were not to deal falsely or swear falsely. Verse 13, they were to have integrity. They were not to oppress people or to hold back the wages of any of their workers. They were also to live Lives of justice. Notice verses 14 through 16. They were not to take advantage of people with disabilities. They were not to curse a deaf man. Even though he couldn't hear the curse. They were not to put a stumbling block in the way of a blind man. Lest he stumble over it. And notice why. Notice why. You shall revere Your God. Notice that injustice to the disabled was equaled to irreverence toward God. So this was no laughing matter. And a similar statement is actually made in verse 32 regarding honoring the elderly around us. The Israelites also need to be just in their judgments, verse 15, and just in their speech. this includes slander and making any unjust accusations against another person. But of course, all of these commands really could be summarized in verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And as we know, Jesus summarized this as the second greatest commandment. Right? All of the law and the prophets could be summarized in love the Lord your God with all your heart and worship and only and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you are holy as I am holy, you will love others as I love. That's what God's saying. Holiness is expressed in love towards other people. Holy living is loving. Right. Just as Christ was holy, his followers should love. Holy living is loving other people. And so if I were to ask you, who is the holiest person that you know? What would you say? The most holy person, you know, is the person that loves the most. That doesn't treat people according to their own selfish desires, but does what is best for other people, regardless of the consequences to themselves. The one who selflessly puts others good above their own good. That is the holiest person, you know. That's what we should be striving to be like. Remember John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. That's what Christians are called to. Right? That's why Paul goes to 1 Corinthians 13 to summarize how do you live out the Christian life? Love people. And of course, the description that we have there of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is not pretty. Nor is it easy. I love the quote by Father Zosima in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karmazov. I've read it a number of times, but I think it's so helpful just to put love in perspective because we live in a world that has lots of silly love songs that, that say nothing about genuine love, they don't, they don't sound like this. So, to remind ourselves what is love? Dostoevsky said, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love in dreams. Love in dreams is greedy for immediate action, rapidly performed and in the sight of all. Men will give their lives if only the ordeal is slow and does not last long, but is soon over with all looking on and applauding as if on stage. But active love is labor and fortitude. And for some people, a complete science. And so while seeking to love in this way, Israelites still need to exercise caution. And that's why God says what he says in chapter sorry, verse nineteen. Loving people does not mean conforming to their practices. Right, Contrary to popular opinion, opinion, loving people does not mean embracing all that they do. That's why God says what he does in verse 19. These verses speak to the need to remain holy by not embracing the practices of the surrounding nations. They speak to a variety of practices, as you'll see, like planting trees, getting tattoos, cutting hair, even the breeding of animals. And the whole point of all these things is you're not to take your cues from the surrounding nations. Don't live like the surrounding nations and said, live like you're set apart for me. You're my people. See, God's people needed to love, but they also needed to be holy. They needed to be separate from the people around them. And likewise for Christians, we need to love the world. We're commanded to. We're commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature to Mark 16. We need to love the world like Christ loved the world without becoming like the world. Recall 1 John 2.6. This is cool. Go ahead and flip to 1 John. It's worth looking at. 1 John 2.6. And you'll see this balance of loving people, this command to love people. Right alongside the call to holiness, 1 John two six. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And this is you know going back to verse five, referring to loving like Christ loved. And then jump down to verse sixteen, same context. He has this warning for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but it's from the world. This world is passing away. Also, it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So there's this command to not love the world or the things in the world. Right alongside love like Christ. We need to love like Christ, but we also need to be holy. And there's no contradiction in those words. Right, because Holiness is Christlikeness, which will be primarily expressed in loving people. Not as the world loves, but as Christ loves. And we need to love the people around us with the greatest kind of sacrificial love. While at the same time not conforming to their patterns and their preferences. The fourth point. Chapter 20, holiness and its consequences. Or rather you could say the consequences of failing to be holy. And this chapter begins with an interesting introduction. Because it dives right into this warning and this prohibition uh, against sacrificing to the god Molech. Molech was the Ammonite god. He is referred to by other names, Milcom as well. And he was actually one of the gods that Solomon built a worship site for in First 1 Corinthians 11.5. So Solomon actually built a worship site for this god. This is what it says. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, or Molech, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And the way that this God was worshipped, as you see, was he was worshipped by child sacrifice. Molech was worshipped by having a a person, a parent, would take their child and what's described here as passing through the fire. They would put them in an oven to be burned in order that Molech or Milcom might bless their life. This is about as low as you can go as a culture. And yet Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Solomon, in fact, previous to this chapter in first screen, had just finished building the temple, the house of God for Israel to permanently stand. The next chapter describes him going after other gods and building places like that are designed for child sacrifice. You have to ask yourself, how does that happen? The verse tells us, the previous verse, 1 Kings eleven four, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. How does such sickness happen in the wisest man that ever lived? He married with unbelievers and they turned his heart away. He conformed to the people surrounding him. And thus the imperative in verse seven. Be holy. Brothers and sisters, just again, let that sink in. Worldliness is not something to toy with. If Solomon could go that far. What might keep us from it? Be holy. Be separate. Don't be conformed to the surrounding peoples. It will destroy you. Then in verse 7, you have this repeated command to be holy. And after giving this command, he lists the consequences for sexual immorality. And this could really easily be summarized. You do these evil sexual perversions, consequence is death. And if the Israelites don't kill you, God will set his face against that person and have them cut off. Death is the consequence. Verses 22 through 27 then give a reiteration of this command to remain holy. Keep the commandments. Don't conform to the surrounding nations. You're seeing a pattern here. God's trying to make a point. Don't go after the gods of the surrounding nations. Don't take your cues from them. Look to my word to find your life by my revelation, not by them. Why does he have to keep saying it? Because they did. They had the sacrifices they had the laws they had the priesthood they saw the consequence of their sin as they sacrificed a goat with their own hands or a bull they knew what the consequence of a sin was but they went away why because they started looking at the surrounding nations for their cues it's not a light thing be holy be separate from the Gentiles. Again, verse 22. You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them so that the land to which I'm bringing you will not spew you out. God said a very similar thing you might have recalled in, in chapter 18, verse 28. So the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. Now, this is a very vivid picture, albeit a, a disgusting one. But it's one that we can, we can relate with easily. If you've ever eaten contaminated food and food poisons, your stomach starts to rumble and bad things happen inside. If you've experienced it, you know. Well, that's what's being communicated here. If you Israelites get defiled like a piece of contaminated food, the land is going to react by vomiting you out. The point being, there are grave consequences to not taking holiness seriously. And this is true for the church as well. In fact, when you Heard that phrase in 1828 and 2022, you might have recalled what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. Go ahead and flip over there. So this is a New Testament passage. Jesus speaking to a church. Revelation chapter 3. It says in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That word in the Greek is actually vomit. It's been tailored a little bit for our eyes. Jesus is alluding to what happened to what the people in Leviticus. The warning that was given there. Because you have conformed to the culture surrounding you, Laodicea, or the church of Laodicea, unless you repent, I will likewise vomit you out of my mouth. You've got to ask yourself, why would Jesus say this to a church? I mean, his bride, his people. I mean, they weren't doing like what's being described in Leviticus. They weren't committing all these immoralities. They weren't worshiping false gods. Actually, they were. If you look closely at what's going on in Laodicea, notice why he rebukes him. Verse 17, You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See what was going on with the church of Laodicea? Is they were boasting in all their wealth, all of their comforts. They had everything they needed. And yet they were lukewarm in their worship. And Jesus says, I would rather you be cold, hard of hearted towards me, or on fire. Because lukewarmness isn't worship. Because unless you are zealous and repent, verse 19. they will be vomited out of his mouth. And so really the dangers of conforming to the world are as real for us Christians today as they were for the Israelites. And the reality is, you know, we might not have to follow every single command that's given here in Leviticus because Christ has fulfilled the law. But as you see, these principles still are true because we see them reiterated in the New Testament. So even if we don't follow every single one of these individual laws, what these laws are trying to convey still does matter to us. Right? And that's why I summarize them as respecting the sanctity of life. Because that's, that is rooted in God's character and in, in, in His design for creation. We are to hold fast to sexual purity because of God's design for marriage. And we are to love sacrificially because we are called to to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we need to take the consequence of worldliness seriously. And if we do these things, we are going to look strange to the world around us. As Dever said, holiness is strangeness. But if Portland is okay with Being weird, we should be okay with seeming weird to Portland. Let's pray. Lord, we have not been purchased with gold, silver, and precious stones. We remember that we have been purchased with the precious blood of a lamb, namely, Your own son. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And therefore, we want to live lives of holiness that don't conform to the patterns of the world around us and the lust of the flesh, the the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Lord, we want to be seen as Christ like ones. And so, for that, we need great wisdom. Where we can recognize these principles and yet what this looks like on a day-to-day basis as far as what we listen to and watch. Lord, that that gets very gray. So I pray that you'd give each one of us wisdom to see how much we're conforming to this world and how much we're conforming to you. That we might shine as bright lights in this world. Even if this world that is filled with darkness thinks we're strange because of the light that we share. We pray these things in Christ's name.